0: now, on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 109th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, what's your listening filter? I'm joined by Hymena Vengochea. She is the author of Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. The publisher is Portfolio Penguin. Zamena is a user researcher, writer, and illustrator whose work on personal and professional development has been published in Inc., The Washington Post, Newsweek, Fast Company, and Elsewhere. Her career has included positions at Pinterest, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Welcome to the show, Mena.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. So uh, give us a brief overview of the book. What's it about?
0: Sure. So the book is about listening and specifically about how we can improve our listening skills um, really in order to strengthen the relationships in our lives. And I wanted to focus on listening because I think often when we think about conversations, we're really focusing on our side of the story, how to tell an interesting story, how to persuade someone or negotiate. Those are things that culturally, we tend to focus on. Um, But when we leave out that other side of listening, we're missing a really big opportunity to get to know someone and to understand them. And ultimately, all the things that opens up, like collaborating better and just relating better to other people. Um, So that's really what the book focuses on.
1: No, no, I I love that. Um, I think it's really important. One of my favorite cartoons is from The New Yorker, where two women are talking and one says the other. But enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and I think we, we've all been in that kind of conversation, and uh, it can get really taxing and quickly, and, you, and you're not learning much because you already supposedly know yourself. So, um, speaking of the the show's uh, title, which is "What's Your Listening Filter." I'm curious, at one point in the book, you talk about listening modes uh, the pivoter, the distractor, the withdrawer, the explorer. Uh, First, you probably have to explain those four terms, but I'm also curious what do you think is your default listening mode at times?
0: Sure. So, just to preface, what I mean by default listening mode is really that there's this kind of natural filter that we're coming into conversation with, and we each have this mode. Um, And it's usually informed by our early relationships, our personality, um, and it's just the way that we relate in conversation through listening. And so there's no mode that's better or worse than the other. It's really about learning when a certain mode is called for. Um, But since this is our default, we're often not paying attention to that. And so for me, my default mode is definitely the problem solver. So the problem solver is usually listening for what is the problem to be solved solved? And how do I solve it? And so that mode is really very helpful when, for example, you're in a conversation where someone is stuck with some kind of problem. Maybe there's a roadblock, they're they're in need of brainstorming or or other ideas, they want to bounce off solutions. The problem-solving listening mode is wonderful for that. It really meets that need. However, it can also be problematic. Let's say if you hear something as a problem that the other person doesn't believe to be a problem. Um, so maybe yes. someone is just complaining about, you know, having a busy schedule, and that problem-solving listening mode can go into overdrive, thinking, okay, what are all the things that we can optimize in your schedule? How can we, you know, move things around? What kind of help do you need, right? And maybe the other person was just venting, um, doesn't actually need advice, isn't trying to solve for that, because it's just a busy day, like no big deal. Um, and so we can really get our wires crossed when we're using the wrong mode in any given conversation.
1: Okay. And do you think being a, a problem solver by Bent is is why you became a market researcher or user researcher in part?
0: Um, I think that it's really just more Part of who I am, I think this is something that I apply, I apply you know, across across fields. It's something that I know about sure. myself, um, and that I can now kind of manage a little bit better. But it's very inherent to my personality. I think that the what drew me more to user research is actually just being very curious about people and their stories. And so, user research is a field where you get to talk to people, you get to understand them, interview them, learn about their lives um, in the context, in my case, of you know working at a technology company um, and applying those learnings to how can we build products that actually meet people's real needs. Um, but for me, the driving uh, motivation has always just been a curiosity about people and the stories they tell and the lives they live.
1: Well, of course, there, there are a lot of technology companies. So I noticed, you know, ones you're at are really in the communication connection mode a lot, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and so forth. So uh, it does seem to, to play out even where you landed uh, professionally. Um, what kind of topics uh, you, you you mentioned in the book that there are certain topics and types of people that tend to either give you energy or, or frankly can be a bit of a drain. What are you particularly drawn to? Where do you really find your energy most? You mentioned stories but uh, particular kinds of stories that intrigue you, satisfy you?
0: I mean, I think for me, um, it really comes down to personal stories. So I'm probably less drawn to, um, let's say, talking about uh, a historical event um, or sports. There are certainly narratives in those topics. Um, I just am not as drawn to them as, say, hearing like, what's personally going on in your life? Um, what, <laughs> what challenges are you facing? Again, back to that problem solving mode, or just, you know, like, how did you get here? What's your history? What makes you tick? What, what makes you frustrated? Um, and so for me, one of the things that I, I have to work on, and I think many people have to work on, you know, we all have these areas that we're more or less interested in where, you know, it's very easy for us to tune out. So for me, if someone starts talking about the Super Bowl, I can very easily kind of like shut down Um, and I have to be aware of that and find a way into the conversation um, that I can remain curious in. And so knowing that for me, I'm so interested in those personal stories, you know, if someone's talking about sports, I'm going to be more interested in asking questions about like the team dynamics and the personalities and the coaches and that side of things, the people side of things more than say the score of the game. And so that's something that we all have these areas that we're more or less interested in. And the, the, the key really, I think to listening through those moments is to finding what is that personal thread that, you know, you find interesting that also overlaps with the general topic that maybe you, you find less interesting as a way to stay engaged and frankly open. To the
1: conversation. No, no. I like that. And I like the people side of sports. I distinctly remember in seventh grade for the upteenth time, people were discussing the Dallas Cowboys. And I, I just instinctively said, I have to find a new circle of friends. <laughs> and uh, off down the hallway of junior high school, I went until I, I found a, a crowd that was going to work a bit better for me, frankly. Um, and I, I know when I'm on business trips, I like listening in on the conversations to a degree, not trying to eavesdrop exactly, but I'm always struck by how Two women or a group of women are much broader in their topics sometimes, quite honestly, than if it's guys who very naturally, it seems to me, default to politics, sports, and maybe finance and um, they don't get to the personal stories nearly as much, in my observations. Do you do you think that's true from your your own days? I would B- say
0: that, that that culturally feels relevant, particularly for Americans, of the sort of um, bonding among men over activities um, rather yeah. than personal histories. Um, I, I certainly don't think that that means like men can't have those conversations or don't. Oh, no,
1: of course um, not. But yes. I do
0: think that uh, st- the stereotype certainly and the the sort of of like predominant cultural form is such that women are really encouraged to share and empathize and talk through their emotions. And men are, are not necessarily, um, encouraged, you know, even, even as boys and as girls, right. Those are just, um, the way that we've been socialized, um, certainly again, in, in the U S.
1: Yeah, no, I often characterize my male friends as those I just do things with, activities, sports, and those that I can have conversations with. And, (laughs) you know, not everybody you can have the conversation with of the male variety. It's just how it happens sometimes. I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned in the book, which is one of the problems that occurs sometimes for researchers is they seem just a little too eager to, uh, quote-unquote, go through their script, go through their discussion guide. And I must say, as someone who's uh, been a researcher, a moderator, watched focus group moderators and so forth, uh, one-on-one interviewers, that does seem to be a problem at times. What what have you seen ways to kind of break that logjam or that instinct just to stay with the straight and narrow? Because I agree with you that curiosity and being an explorer – is really essential to learning, growing, and getting to optimal outcomes.
0: Well, I think one of the, there's a couple of causes of, you know, why do we cling so tightly to that script? I think part of it is um, maybe a lack of confidence, or, you know, especially when you're new in your career, you think, okay, this is how this is done. And um, sometimes we concentrate so much on that that we forget to give space to serendipity um, and learning things on the fly. Um, so some of it, I think, is just, Managed over time, right, as you're in that role. Um, But other parts of it, I think, can happen. For example, when we, let's say, we have a lot of expertise in a topic, um, we may come into a conversation thinking, well, I know most of what there is to know. And so I'm just going to ask these specific questions um, and get those very specific answers and move on. It's kind of a, it's in an interesting way, it's kind of a closed box, right? It's like we know a lot. And so we're only trying to fill in these little pieces of the puzzle. Uh but no, that's, that's- what happens there though is that you know when we come in with these very strong preconceived notions or ideas or expertise, um, we're really limiting what the other person can contribute. We're actually confining them to exactly what we want to hear. And so it's really about Coming to these conversations from a place of humility and positioning yourself, not as the expert, even if you do have quite a lot of expertise and domain knowledge, but positioning yourself instead as a student and thinking, what can I learn here? And also, what else can I learn here? Again, especially if you're an expert. I'm sure there's a lot of things that you know, but what else, what else might there be um, that you can learn? And why might this be per- this person be responding in this way? Or why might they be approaching the topic in this way? Um, I think those are all questions that you can um, not necessarily ask out loud, but kind of have in the back of your head that help expand a conversation.
1: Yeah, no, w- widen the lens. I-, I admit that I'm also concerned sometimes that part of what they want to hear is something that's just positive. I remember one time observing an interview someone was conducting with a doctor, and the doctor wanted to go into why there was some shortcomings, frankly, in the marketing campaign for a particular drug that was being prescribed, and the person was just shut down, wasn't allowed to go there. Um, I think maybe the researcher was afraid of uh, displeasing the client listening in the back room. Uh, Have you had situations like that, and have you used your knowledge to try to Still widen the lens, but uh, keep the whole thing, I guess I'll say, viable.
0: Certainly, power dynamics like that can put pressure um, on a researcher, um, but it's really important to set those aside as as often as possible. Um, You know, I like to say when I'm going into an interview with someone, um, I tell them I'm like neutral Switzerland. So I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not here to judge anything that they've said. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, I try to really reassure them that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a blank slate ready to receive what they have to say, um, good or bad. And I tell them I want to hear it all. Um, and that's really important for me to say to the participant to help them open up and for them to understand that they don't have to perform for me in any way. They don't have to be sunshiny and give me only good news. Um, in fact, I want the bad news. It's also important for the backroom to hear. So for my teammates to hear and be reminded of what is the purpose of the session. We're not trying to um, confirm a hope. <laughs> if that happens, that's great. But the goal is really to learn with an open mind um, rather than to kind of back somebody into a corner into saying like, yes, this, you know, app you've designed is, is wonderful because it's, frankly, yeah, it's, it's perfectly, not useful. Perfectly fine. Right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, I'm sure you're, you're the ideal researcher because I've I, yeah, I read your book. <laughs> I, I believe um, I was also interested as I was reading the book, I got to chapter 10 and I have to think this is the reason why a lot of people would read the book because chapter 10 is devoted to what you call difficult conversations. So the book is, enjoyable and informative, but if one's merely having a conversation with the checkout clerk in the grocery store, that may not be as big of a driver as trying to tackle some of these difficult situations. So let's go into a few of them in the time we've got left. I'd uh, be curious to see, you know, obviously every situation's different but maybe there's a particular instance that comes to mind and a, a tip or two as to how to handle a situation. So we'll do, we'll just try these and if some don't work for you we can we can move on to another variation of a difficult conversation. So so one is of course the the boss subordinate because you just mentioned power politics or power dynamics. And clearly in that situation, there's an imbalance of power. What happens when the subordinate is trying to change or open the the boss's mind to something that the boss may not really want to hear? How do you make that kind of conversation work?
0: Part of that, I think, comes down to preparation and mindset. And so if you are in the subordinate position, it probably feels very daring, maybe scary, uh, intimidating to try and change your boss's mind about something. And in many cases, we'll often shy away from having the conversation to begin with, or we'll kind of set it up in a way where, um, where, where we're already putting ourselves in a position of a disadvantage. You know, maybe it's being overly self-deprecating or, you know, oh, this is just a silly idea, right? The kind of setup that um, really isn't going to help your case. And so I think if you're in that position, just remembering um, to humanize the other person. So doing your best to mentally kind of strip away the title and experience of the other person, obviously you're still going to show respect, but really taking them off whatever mental pedestal you've put them on and remembering that at one point they were in your position um, earlier in their career, um, I think can help to, again, sort of just equalize things just a little bit um, as you go into that conversation, and I think if you're in the position of power, then doing your best to equalize things as well. So maybe that includes acknowledging. You know, I know I'm so excited to hear your thoughts. I know I'm the boss, and that can be kind of intimidating. But like I'm, I'm here with an open mind. Um, so you can say that out loud. Um, you can also share maybe um, your experience uh, when you were at that stage of your career. I remember how hard this was to do something that really acknowledges the other person's position and also you know demonstrates a willingness to be vulnerable and invites the other person to be vulnerable as well. Um, so it really is when we're talking about that kind of power dynamic, it really involves both people doing what they can to get to more even footing.
1: Oh, no, I, I like that answer. Uh, it's a very even answer from both sides, and, and particularly for the subordinate not setting themselves up to be readily dismissed. I, th- I think that's really important. Um, another situation. So, uh, unfortunately, the couple's divorced. There's kids involved. Uh, they're both insecure because they want uh, the children to, you know, like them and not exclude them, maybe even favor them. So you now kind of have a competitive relationship, and the conversations are fitful and occasion and full probably plenty of stress, how does one keep the temperature down and, and manage to constructively move through uh, talks about uh, child rearing?
0: So when a competitive dynamic, you want to think about what the competition actually is. So, you know, maybe it is literally a competition for custody or a child's attention, but Usually when there's competition, there's some kind of jealousy involved as well. So maybe there is a trait that one spouse has and the other doesn't have. And there's some jealousy around that of like, oh, I'm worried that my kids will want to be with their dad more because, you know, he's the fun parent and I'm the disciplinarian or whatever it may be. And I think identifying that can help us kind of go into the conversation with a little bit of a clearer head. Um, And also, frankly, especially in this situation of there's there is a partnership, even if it is, you know, formally broken via divorce, it's still a, a co-parenting situation, um, to be able to come united to those kids and to be able to acknowledge what the other spouse does really well, (laughs) you know, so if there is something that you're slightly jealous of to say, Oh, that's a strength that your dad has. And, you know, he's going to keep doing that. And here's what I'm going to keep doing. um, I think can, can shift it from, we're going against each other to, okay, we, we, we don't always agree, but the other person also has, you know, great qualities. And in fact, that may be part of the competition. Um, And that's why we want to present as, as a united front.
1: Okay, well, that's good. A, a spirit of generosity, as opposed to being threatened by that that strength of that attribute of the other side. Um, you mentioned the book, and you'll probably have to explain this to listeners. But you call it, I believe, the family systems theory. And I was interested in applying that in situations, for instance, where uh, you know the parents uh, quite elderly, and the child's trying to. Step in and help with healthcare issues and maybe even the estate. So there's a, I think you call it regressive relationships where it's easy to fall back into something much earlier in life where your interactions were different than your station in life now. Uh, given all of that, the regressive relationships, the family systems theory, what's going on there and uh, how one might navigate that well?
0: Well, usually, what's happening there is that we have these roles that we grow up with. So maybe in your family, you were, you know, the jokester who always brought levity to a difficult situation, or maybe you were, uh, you learned to withdraw in in a family discussion. Um, whatever that was for you, um, usually we, we return to that. So, so maybe now as an adult in, in a different relationship, you know, you don't hold those things, but as soon as you go home, you realize, oh my goodness, I am doing the sullen teenager thing. Um, And I never (laughs) do that, you know, with my friends. Um, So that's, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about regressive relationships. They pull you back to a previous version of yourself, which may not be helpful, um, and which can often raise the stakes on these kinds of conversations. And so I think in in this case, one, realizing that that's what's happening, um, maybe even trying to anticipate that beforehand of, okay, I usually turn turn into a kind of surly version of myself. Um, I'm going to watch out for that Um, in the moment, noticing what's happening. So I think here is where Um, Tuning into your body can be really useful because our emotions can manifest physically where you might notice, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I've been clenching my fists this entire time, or, you know, my chest is feeling tight and my heart is racing. Like these are all signs that you're having some kind of strong response, um, often an emotional response to what's being said and being able to hit pause, I think is particularly useful Um, in family conversations. It's useful in any conversation in which you're emotionally activated, but because our family is so good (laughs) at activating us (laughs) in this way, it's really, really useful here. Um, And that's, you know, noticing, okay, I'm having a strong physical reaction. I'm having a strong emotional reaction. I can no longer hear clearly what's being said or, you know, I'm ready to yell or whatever that response may be and saying, you know what, Um, this conversation is super important to me. I want to continue it, but I have to take a break. Can we come back to this in five minutes or after dinner or tomorrow after I've had, you know, a good night's sleep, whatever it may be. Um, as long as you close the loop when you are hitting pause, then it's a perfectly reasonable approach to say, oops, I'm over threshold. Um, let's, (laughs) let's hit pause here and come back to this.
1: Yeah, no, it's certainly true that in a family situation, um, there's all sorts of buttons, things that get reactivated. It's really rich territory. Uh, Eugene O'Neill's most famous play, A Long Day's Journey tonight, Night, only dared release it after his parents had passed away uh, because, you know, it had a lot of throw weight to it. Um so, maybe one last question. Your, your book is wonderful. It's got nice endorsements Adam Grant, Seth Godin, many others. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, another book? How, how are you out there applying your your uh, supreme listening skills?
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I am working on another book, which will come out in two years, <laughs> knowing how, how publishing works. Um, sure. So, and that book will be about rest um, and how we can. Uh, rest more, why we, why we don't get rest, how we can get more of it. Um, so in the meantime, I'm working on that and um, interviewing people. So using a lot of the listening skills we talked about um, as part of the book research process.
1: Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Hymena. Uh, this has been episode 109 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, her book is called Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to the New Books Network and typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight into the search bar, and those another additional episodes will all appear. Uh, Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram, something hopefully relevant. In this case, I took one from Stephen Covey, who said, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Until next time, take care and be well.